morning, everyone. Welcome to the show, The Politically Social, and I'm your host, Afia. Today, we have with us uh, Mr. Peter Kellner once again. The last time we spoke was when Boris Johnson had just about announced his resignation. Peter John Kellner is an English journalist, former BBC Newsnight reporter, political commentator, and a former president of the YouGov opinion polling organization in the UK. He is known for his appearances on TV, especially at election times. He has also been a visiting fellow at the Nuffield College, Oxford, and the Institute for Policy Studies, London, and has advised several large corporations. He's the former chairman of NCVO, which is the National Council for Voluntary Organizations, and a visiting scholar at Carnegie Europe. In 2011, he received a special recognition award from the Political Studies Association for his achievements in bringing polling and intelligent use of numbers and figures to election coverage. Our topic today is what led to the resignation of resignation of Liz Truce and the rise of Rishi Sunak as the new prime minister of the UK. Welcome, Peter. Pleasure. Yeah, looking forward to this. Thank you. So, Peter, a lot has happened in British politics since we last spoke. What has been the reaction of the common man? Afia, let me start off by saying I don't think I've used the term common man for decades and wouldn't dare now. Um, but the common voter, the normal voter, um, it, they're slightly shell-shocked by what's happened. Um, since we last spoke, we've had two changes of prime minister, as well as it happens as a change of model, because... Queen Elizabeth died in the middle of all this. So it's been a sort of period of, of, of upheaval at the top of British society, not just um, politics. But the remarkable thing was Liz Truss becoming prime minister, lasting only six weeks, uh, seven weeks, um, before having to go. We now have um, Rishi Sunak. Um, and what we now have is a situation where the government is trying to repair a lot of the economic damage of the last few weeks and months. A lot of voters recognise this damage does have to be repaired, but they do blame the government and the various upheavals within the government for getting us into this mess in the first place. Um, and this is the first time someone of South Asian origin has become the Prime Minister of the UK. Uh, in your opinion, how significant is this? I think this is extremely um, significant. Um, and, you know, uh, although from time to time there are uh, social and political problems around uh, ethnicity and immigration and so on, in my judgment, uh, Britain's record on, on race has been actually not at all bad over, over my lifetime um, compared with, say, the United States or, say, France across the across the channel. And, uh, you know, when I was a, a young man half a century ago, there were no, virtually no non-white people um, in, a, in, in leadership roles, in politics, in business, in the media, in broadcasting. When I started out as a journalist on the London Sunday Times uh, half a century ago, it was, as far as I can recall, a wholly white um, staff and with men, indeed, not women, in the top um, positions. And this has changed. The odd thing is that um, racial equality has been more of an issue of the left in Britain as, as in the United States and in many other um, 
countries. And um, when you started to get um, black, brown, Asian, um, African, Caribbean born MPs, um, it was Labour who, who was in the lead back in the 1980s and 90s. But now we have um, a British Asian prime minister who's a conservative, just as the only three women prime ministers we've had in Britain are conservative, though, again, historically it was Labour uh, that took the lead on gender equality. There's something slightly curious about it. But nevertheless, um, it is significant um, that he's become prime minister. And the real significance of him is this. It doesn't seem to make any difference to his reputation, good or bad. As far as I can see, with him and with other um, people in, in, in British politics, race, gender and indeed sexuality um, are pretty well non-issues in terms of how people how people vote. And that, I think, is the really significant and really good thing about why Britain has got to. And and now the UK technically will have five PMs in just six years. How healthy is this for UK politics? Um, it's not healthy. I mean, I don't think it's catastrophic. Um, you know, I don't think we're like you know Italy for much of the last seventy or eighty years, which has changed governments. You know, as often as it's changed its shirts. Um, um, but there is clearly a degree of instability. I think the real problem, though, is the root of that instability, because throughout these six years, we've had conservative governments. Um, um, and what is going on is it's the Conservative Party, which is unstable um, because of internal frictions, principally over Brexit, Britain's relationship with the European Union, but bundled up with that are ideological difference, differences between um, committed right-wingers um, and the more moderates, mirroring to a very, very rough extent what you have in the Republican Party um, in, in, in America, between, as were, the MAGA right-wingers um, and the more traditional, if you like, mid the end of the party who tended to be more, the more moderate ends. Hmm. Um, and why do you think the government is reshuffling so much in the UK? Well, it's the playing out of this friction inside the Conservative Party. I mean, let's go very, very briefly through what happened. You mentioned five prime ministers. Prime Minister number one, David Cameron. He called a referendum on whether Britain should stay in the European Union. He wanted us to stay in. He thought he would win it. Easily, he didn't. He lost. And the moment he lost that referendum, he was out. Um, then we had um, Theresa May as Prime Minister, the person selected by the Conservative Party. Um, she negotiated, she tried to negotiate a new arrangement between London and Brussels, between Britain and the European Union. She couldn't get it through Parliament. Too many Conservative MPs. Uh, were, were more purist in what they wanted out of Brexit. They wanted Britain to be far more separate than from uh, Europe than, than, than Theresa May wanted. And in the end, this conflict between that side of the Conservative Party, uh, she lost the confidence of, of the MPs, Conservative MPs in Westminster. She had to go. In comes Boris Johnson. Okay. Boris Johnson, um, flamboyant, um, He's he's like Trump in some ways, in that he's 
he's a character. He's been made by um, the media. Uh, some people love him, other people loathe him. Um, and he's a person, how shall I put this without any of us getting into legal trouble? He's a person whose personal honesty and morality has been a subject of debate <laughs> for some years, uh, from long before he we went into Parliament um, anyway. But anyway, he, he uh, within a few months of becoming a Prime Minister, he calls a general election, mm-hmm. wins it comfortably, and it looks as if um, he's in the driving seat for some years to come with a big majority. He does a Brexit uh, deal um, with, with, with Brussels. Britain finally actually leaves the European Union but then things start to go wrong. And without going into the details, it was a mixture of problems to do with the implementation of Brexit, which was dividing his party, um, problems to do with his own personal behaviour. Um, during the COVID lockdown, he was in passing all sorts of laws and setting all sorts of rules, which he insisted we all obeyed. And he broke some of those rules Himself, he was seen to be partying with other people in precisely the way that the rules that he had introduced were supposed to stop. Um, and the final straw was a bizarre little thing where one of his um, MPs was accused of sexual harassment in in, in, in a club, and he didn't act very fast to deal with it. Now, normally that would be a trivial issue in passing by, but by the time this happened. Boris Johnson was in all sorts of trouble anyway because of Brexit, because of his so-called party gate um, behaviour. And in the end, the Conservative Party just, it, it just a bit like metal fatigue in an aircraft wing. You know, you, you know it'll, at some point the wing will drop off, but you can't tell when. Well, the metal fatigue hit Boris Johnson and the wing fell off as Prime Minister, Prime Minister ended. So Boris Johnson, number, Prime Minister number three. Here we come to number four. Uh, Liz Truss uh, wins the battle to succeed him. Not, and this is significant, not amongst the members of parliament, but amongst the grassroots local members. Um, But those were the rules. She won the vote amongst grassroots members, became prime minister, and she is a real of the faith rights winger. Um, Think of her as a Newt Gingrich or a dissentus, um, you know, a hardline uh, right winger. Um, and she, with her chancellor, a man called Kwasi Kwarteng, and second most important person in government, um, black African by, by, by origin. Again, you know, an example of, of how race is changing in British politics. Anyway, they cook up. Uh, a mini budgets, set of economic policies, tax plans, and so on. A few weeks ago, and they were bonkers. They were sort of seriously mad right wing. Cut taxes. Don't worry about borrowing. You know, and, and the money, the financial markets, to which Britain is much more vulnerable to the United States, with its much bigger economy. But the world's money markets just trashed the British economy and sterling, and. In the end, the inevitable happens, and she resigns, as I say, just after, after just seven weeks as Prime Minister. And then the person she beat in the contest, the, basically the MPs rallied round Rishi Sunak, 
um, and made sure um, that the vote did not this time go out to the ordinary members because they, as it were, uh, altered the rules to require a hundred signatures from MPs. Nobody else um, got them, um, and um, he's been prime minister ever since. So that's number five. So that very briefly is how we got to where we are. But you see through this personality, ideology, Brexit, these three things coming together um, in different ways at different stages to bring down a series of prime ministers. So do you think Liz, Liz Truss was trying to mitigate the damage um that uh, the damage done by Boris Johnson and terribly failed at that. Um, she, that is basically what she said, that, that, that the British economy and stall things would not be going well and things needed to change. But the point about this trust is that she, um, she drank, I was going to say the hemlock, that's probably not quite right, but you know, she drank the Kool-Aid of a number of right-wing think tanks in London who basically said, look, if you cut taxes, actually business will, if you, you, know, if you, if you cut taxes for companies and the rich, then they'll work harder, businesses will grow, you'll end up with more tax revenue, the economy will be fine, and in the end, the public finances will be great. It's a sort of, it's been a right-wing mantra in, in the United States, as in Britain, for decades. But this is the, this is the first time that um, you know anybody actually did it in such a wholehearted um, way. And it went badly um, wrong. Um, you know, I, I would give this trust credit. I don't think she was being devious or cynical. If you look, like, my criticism is not that she was devious or cynical. My criticism is that she actually believed it wholeheartedly, but what she believed was nonsense. Right, right, right. But do you think this can really mean an electoral wipeout for the Conservative Party in the next election? Theoretically, it could. Um, what's been happening this year is that until uh, Liz Trust became a minister, until that mini-budget that went horrendously wrong, um, Labour was five or ten points ahead of the Conservatives in the polls. Now, in Britain at least, if a governing party is only five or ten points behind, you know, in midterm, a couple of years after re-election, they would say that's a pretty good place to be because normally governments recover support as you get close to the election and they could easily have won from there. Then what happened is after the mini budget and the and and interest rates shooting up and the pound falling catastrophically, um, and the sheer horror of what was happening to our economy, the Tory support fell off a, of a cliff. Labour went from a you know, 10 point lead to a 30.30 30 point um, lead. Um, some polls showed the Conservatives lower than they'd ever been before, around 20% support against you know, more than 50 for Labour. Uh, and then other, you know, other smaller parties, Greens, Scottish Party, Liberals, and so on, making up the rest against 100. Um, now, um, what's happened since? Uh, Sunak became really Sunak became prime minister. Is the Conservatives have recovered a bit, but they're still about twenty points behind Labour, mm -hmm. not ten, but not thirty. And a twenty-point lead, if that were the election results, would mean the Conservatives being hammered 
uh, massively. Not not a wipeout like the Liberals were in Canada in the nineteen sorry, like the Conservatives were in Canada in the nineteen nineties when they went from government down to two seats in a single election. That's never gonna happen. But a hundred but if you're twenty points behind, the Conservatives could be down to 100 or 150 MPs in a parliament of 650. However, Adia, I would be surprised if Labour were to win by that much. I think Labour will win the next election, um, but, if, but I would expect the tradition to reassert itself of a government recovering to some degree as the election approaches. So whether Labour will have um, a comfortable overall majority, whether it'll be a minority government, but able to carry on, I don't know. So theoretically, the Conservatives could be wiped out. In practice, I don't expect that to happen. What were some of the major challenges that Liz Truss faced, especially since, you know, the tremendous increase in energy prices, very rapid growth mm -hmm. of inflation, and a lot of income disparity within the middle class were some of the very major problems at the time. Do you think uh, she had limited resources or limited choices? What what was it? Well, she <laughs> she had more limited choices than she realized, which is why it went, went wrong. Um, I mean, the biggest single specific problem arising out of energy prices, the you know the war in Ukraine, Russia's, you know, sanctions on Russia on on on, um, on, on gas um and the knock-on effects with fuel prices rising, which meant in, um, in inflation rising. Uh, it's now about eleven percent it's been rising month by month for the last uh, six months uh, in, in Britain. Um the biggest single challenge this trust faced was people's domestic uh, fuel bills um, for their gas and electricity, gas in the British sense, the, the gas that does your central heating, not not the gasoline you put in your car. Um, um, and I think it was generally accepted that the government would have to, in some form, subsidise people's fuel bills um, um, if you were not going to get people literally freezing and starving through the winter. The question was, where was the money going to come from? Mm -hmm. um, and Liz Truss basically said, did two things. She would guarantee um, uh, uh, limits to energy prices right up to the next election, two years away. Um, and she would find the money from borrowing, not from putting up taxes. Um, and that was the start of her troubles. She then added to them by making other tax cuts, a corporation tax, uh, the taxes paid by higher earners and so on, a whole bundle of tax cuts, which, um, uh, without cutting back spending. So she was, so take all these measures together, including energy, and it was going to send government borrowing to, I mean, ridiculous extremes. And she didn't realise the financial markets wouldn't have that. You know, she thought they would accept the argument that this way growth will revive. The animal spirits of business, of investors, of innovation would kick in and the economy would, would grow and that would solve all the problems. Well, as we now know, um, the money markets didn't buy that and hence we got into trouble. 
how do you think will Rishi Sunak overcome these challenges, though? Well, he's made a start. Um, and, um, what he's done with the, with the Chancellor now, Jeremy Hunt, who was actually appointed by Liz Truss after she had to realise she had to sack her former Chancellor, uh, you know, Treasury Minister, if you like, um, and, um, uh, and change course. And what Jeremy Hunt has done with Sunak is simply reverse pretty well all of Liz Truss's policies. They've kept the current plan to subsidise fuel prices this winter through to next April. There's going to be some subsidy after that, but it won't be as big as, it, as Truss plans to be. And she's not only reversed the cuts to taxing companies and to taxing well-placed people, um, they've been put up. So companies and and rich people will pay more tax than they have done um, up to now. Um, now, the money markets are happy with this because it means although there is still a lot of borrowing, it doesn't look completely lunatic and it looks like there is a strategy over the next four, five, six years to um, bring it, start to bring it back down. Um, the money markets are happy with that. But politically, here's the problem. You know, one of the things about being conservative is, in general, you believe in cutting taxes and less government involvement in economy and society. So lower taxes, less government spending. But we're now moving into an era when tax and public spending as a share of our economy is higher than it's ever been in peacetime. You, know, you have to go back to the particular circumstances of the Second World War and its immediate aftermath to find the same kind of percentages. Uh, in those days, of course, even higher because you had a water fight. Um, but you know, to have um, a tax um, take and the spending um, total as a share of the economy, which is higher than it's been under any Labour government in, you know, in, in, in the last half century, um, this is politically uncomfortable for many Conservatives. Um, you know, voters don't like it. I think they, on the whole, understand the need for it. But a lot of them are scratching their heads and saying, well, hang on, how did we get into this mess? And they do blame the Conservatives. Um, you know, it's as if the economy has been driven into a ditch. Everybody understands you need to undergo whatever measures you need to take to drag the economy like a car out of the ditch. But people say, well, who got into the ditch in the first place? And this is where the Conservatives are in trouble. Do you think it ended up becoming a problem that Ms. Truce did not really consult the Office of Budget Responsibility before coming up with the mini-budget, which included all the colossal tax cuts? And, and, and do you think she alone was responsible for this? Uh, that's right, but it's more than that. There are two important players in the world of British economy and finance when it comes to government policy. The Office of Budget Responsibility, which, which you mentioned, and the other people, every time there's a major government economic statement, take the government's policies and run them through their computer and say, this is what it means over the next few years for inflation, for living standards, for jobs, and, and, and so on. Um, 
and the government, and they're independent. They're, they were set up by the government, but they're independent, and their forecasts are published alongside the budget. And as you say, uh, this trust refused to do that. The other player is the Bank of England, because they're the people who set interest rates. And while it was a Conservative government that set up the Office of Budget Responsibility well, 12 years ago, it was a Labour government 25 years ago that handed the power to decide interest rates to the Bank of England, to our version of the Fed. Um, and um, again, um, one of the consequences of trust going ahead without properly consulting the bank was that they made it clear that if this, these policies were not reversed, interest rates were going to have to go up a lot. And that played in to the drama and the crisis, which led in the end to Truss's uh, uh, departure. And what do you think really happened that in just a matter of a couple of days, the British pound rate fell to its lowest level as compared to the US dollars? And what do you think is Rishi Sunak really doing to mitigate this damage? Well, the I remember the, the, the when we had that mini budget, the trust quartet mini budget, which is what, just a couple of months ago now, um, on it was on a unusually for Parliament, which doesn't normally do very much on Fridays. It was it was a Friday um, lunchtime, and you could see um, on on the uh, uh, you know on the news charts you could see the pound dropping by the minute through that afternoon. And I happened that evening to be um, at an event um, largely populated by um, conservative politicians and. and and funders and think tankers and so on. Um, not a group I normally socialise with to any great extent, but on this occasion I happen to be. And they were gobsmacked. They were astonished. Um, whether they were, as it were, on the right fringe or, or, or more moderate, they, uh, even the right wingers who sympathised with Truss's general view towards government and the and and. and levels of taxation, realised she, she just sort of gone, uh, you know, gone bonkers. Um, um, so you know, that was when the pound um, collapsed um, and then it recovered as it became clear these policies would not survive. Uh, um, I think it was a couple of weeks later that um, Kwarteng was sacked as Chancellor. He'd been in Washington as meeting the of the um, IMF and World Bank, they meet together, or anyway, she was in Washington, one of these big international, he, he, he was in Washington, one of those big financial meetings, and basically Trust decided to sack him when he was on the plane back. Um, when he arrived back in London, he was out of his job. And and that was, and then, you know, everything started, started to be put back politically, in policy terms, the financial markets, the Bank of England, and so on. And then, so, when we finally get to last week and the uh, as well the proper financial statements of the new policies, ones which pretty well completely overturned everything Trust was doing, uh, the financial markets were perfectly happy. British public's not so happy, but the financial markets uh, were comfortable, which at least means that although we, like you in the States, um, have higher interest rates today than a year or 18 months ago, they're not likely to end up as high as they looked like ending up mm -hmm. just a few weeks ago on the trust. 
Why do you think Sunak delayed the new economic plan, though? Um, well, he became prime minister uh, on, from memory, the, 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 the new policies were supposed to be unveiled on Monday, October the 31st. Um, Sunak became prime minister on Tuesday the 25th, six days earlier. Now, um, going back to something we were discussing a few minutes ago, the role of the Office of Budget Responsibility, they produce their forecasts alongside the statements. They need some time to prepare that. They need to be told what the policy decisions are so they can run them through the computer and analyse them and work out what to say about them. Um, so um, once Sunak had realised that one of the big trust mistakes was not to involve the OBR and not to involve the Bank of England, Sunak was determined to do the process of consultation properly. And it's perfectly reasonable to you can't do that six days after becoming uh, Prime Minister. Um, by this time, anyway, the financial market had started. Once trust had gone, the financial markets were beginning to uh, be sort of a bit calmer. Um, and so I don't, the, the, that, there was no longer the pressure of time on Sunak that there had been with trust. So we had the delay, and I think it was sensible, and we ended up with the policies that were announced last week. And finally, do you think that Rishi Sunak will be successful in regaining the trust of the British common man again? Common man. I feel you're determined to make me say common man. I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the common voter. Um, I don't think he'll lead the Conservatives to victory at the next election. It might be a messy parliament with neither Labour nor the Conservatives having an outright majority. Because unlike America, of course, we do have you know my, our other parties. The Scottish National Party, at the moment, has more than 50 members of parliament. Um They'll probably keep most of those, if not all of them. The Liberal Democrats may have 20 the next election, but the Irish MPs, the Greens and so on. So you know, it's a slightly messier setup than you have in, in, in Congress or the Senate. Um, but unless, but for reasons I could bore you at length with, but take it from me, unless the Conservatives come very, very close to an overall majority, they will be out of power. What I'm saying is you could have a position where the Conservatives are the largest party but don't have enough MPs to carry on governing. So it's possible you'll have a Labour government, even though Labour is the second largest party, because a lot of the other parties, like the Liberal Democrats, like the Scottish National Party, they would vote to bring down a minority Conservative government. They would not, at least in the first instance, vote to bring down a minority Labour government. So the reason I'm fairly confident that... Rishi Sunak will lose the next election is not because I'm certain the Conservatives will be, will be not because I'm certain the Labour will have more MPs than the Conservatives, but I just don't see the Conservatives having enough MPs to be able to carry on. So I would expect that Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, to become Prime Minister, though whether it's for six months, a year, two years or five years, that'll depend on the numbers, that'll depend on the politics on and after the election. And I guess also on how well he's able to mitigate some of the damages the prior prime ministers have, have you know, 
uh, well, that, that, yeah, this is this is this is Rishi Sunak's, if you like, biggest handicap. Mm. Um, the, the, some recent polling has found that his own personal ratings are actually not at all bad. They're not great, but they're okay. They're um, okay. But the Conservative Party's ratings are awful. So if you ask people, who do you trust on the economy more, Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer? Yeah. They come close to each other. If you ask the same people, who do you think is better trusted on the economy, Labour or the Conservatives, they'll say Labour by a big margin. Yeah. Um, and so you've got this very strange situation, which doesn't often happen, where there's a big gap between the reputation of the leader and the reputation of the party. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's one very clear historical parallel for this. And this was in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, Winston Churchill, the war leader, very popular as a man, but uh, there was an election, he led the Conservatives, everybody expected to win comfortably. No, the Conservatives were heavily defeated, a Labour landslide. And that was because Winston Churchill was popular, but the Conservative Party was very unpopular because of its record before the war. Um, so when you get that divergence between a leader and the party, in Britain at least, it's the reputation of the party that really matters more. I think in a lot of Commonwealth countries, that's really the case, though. Just because, you know, the, the ministers actually have to execute a lot of things in general, and it's not the leader alone. So so I guess, you know, we'll see how things are for Rishi Sunak. But Thank you very much for joining us today. This was a wonderful session. Thank you for coming. Great pleasure, Adia.